Will you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the story. We thank you for um, redemption. Thank you for that. We thank you for um, giving the gift that we didn't earn. Lord, um, I pray that everyone in this room and whoever's watching online and and those who can't be here today, that they can receive that, um, that they can understand that this is not just a story where we're watching and we're witnesses at the gate, but rather we are in the story, God. Thank you. Thank you that you loved us so much that you sent your son to live and to die for us. And it's in his name that we pray, amen. Hi, everybody. Um, Ruth 4, if you have your Bible, open up to Ruth 4. You're probably like, so hey, there's only four chapters in this thing and we're on week seven. Yeah, we are. Chris Stritch, is it out? Yeah? Well, today we're gonna look at a pretty good chunk of Ruth 4. We're gonna look at verses one through 12. Um, I love this chapter. I don't know if you felt this way, but like, you know, we've been doing this for a little bit. You know, we've been on this little journey. And, and I think about, I think back to chapter one and we started with three what? Three funerals, right? Lots of weeping and, and lots of mourning and lots of bitterness. And now here we are in chapter four and there's a wedding, As somebody in our group said, the cheapest, least expensive wedding of all time, right? Just involved a sandal, pretty much, right? There's a wedding and there's joy and there's celebrating. And so we go from funerals to weddings and we're going to have a birth soon. It's amazing how God can take that. I bet you, I would bet, we are in church. I don't know if you can do that in church, right? But anyway, I would guess there's not one person in that whole story that saw chapter four coming the way it came, right? And so I, if there's nothing else that you walk out of here with, I don't know if you are in the chapter one part. Just remember that God has great plans for our chapter four that we don't see coming, right? That there's joy and they're celebrating. Well, redemption, I mentioned in, in, while we were praying, you know, that, that's what I felt like. Redemption is the big story. Can you start the timer up there? Thank you. Otherwise we'll be here all day, which would be great. Um, redemption is God's big story, but, but the little story here too, right? I think about the uh, last week, you know, I found that really cool um, explanation of when you think about a kinsman redeemer, when we talked about that, we're gonna go there a little bit more. And remember the idea of a kinsman redeemer is what? Somebody that walks up, no matter what the cost, pulls out the checkbook, the blank check and says, this one's mine. I got it, how much, right? And so when we think of redemption, you think of what we're out to see unfold at the city gate. And what you think about that, you know, the blank check and this redeemer is about to pay a price. Well, when I was thinking through this, I, I thought about um, this, right? I mean, if you read the, some of you are like, I don't know what you're talking about. You didn't read the book. <laughs> if you read the book, you know what I'm talking about, right? There was a weird thing that happened with one shoe and we'll get to that in just a minute. But you know what I was thinking about when I was looking at the, uh, the whole one shoe thing, I was like, you know what? This is just Chris, this is not in the Bible. So don't write this down. What happened to the shoe, anyone? <laughs> Anyone wonder, like, you know, the, the shoe is gonna be a big player in our story in just a minute, but like, what happened? Did like Boaz and Ruth take this home and like set it on the mantle? <laughs> they frame it, you know, I don't know. Was it a keepsake that they looked at? Did they tell their families, their children about it? I, I like to think that maybe they did. I don't know what the custom was. We talked about that a little bit in our group. Like, did, did the shoe actually go home with Boaz as the agreement? Or, you know, did, did, did the nameless dude have to go to the shoe guy and say, hey man, I need a, another shoe. Just one, it's fine. I don't know. 
But I thought about it as I looked around my house when I was sitting here doing my homework, you know what I looked around and I started seeing all these keepsakes and mementos and, and things that I have that, that are hanging on the walls or that are sitting around that nobody else really knows the story like a weird sandal, but I do. Like I, 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 I'm telling you, just within eye shot of where I was sitting, I saw a little antique um, little jar full of sand. And to you, it just looks like a jar of dirt, you know? But to me, it was sand from Belize on the beach the day that my daughter got baptized. And I brought it home. Don't tell Belize in America, because don't they don't, don't like the, when you bring dirt home. Anyway, don't tell anybody. But that's what that means to me. You know, I look at it every day. And then I looked around and I saw this, and this is really weird. And people ask me sometimes, because it's super weird. Back in the olden days, you, when you went skiing, you had like this physical lift ticket, right? Remember? And you put it on your little zipper when you go skiing. I have a lift ticket from 1987 framed in my living room. And the reason why is because on that ski trip, that's when we were on a Young Life ski trip and my husband and I decided we weren't husband, clearly. He was not any, he was just a friend. And at that time, that was when we decided, all right, enough's enough, we're gonna date, you know? And then that was the beginning of my forever. And so I have this dumb little lift ticket framed, 1987. The other thing I think about, I look around my living room. If you've been there before, you know this. I have crumbled up set lists from concerts and I have like, um, like guitar picks and banjo picks framed. And everybody else looks at that and says like, she's crazy. She goes to a lot of concerts. You know, I look at that and I think about how God gave us the margin to be able to go and spend this evening that was like this epic thing. And also that my husband is really good at catching set lists, very good. But see, I see things, right? You have them too. And so I think about this sandal, I think about what did Ruth and Boaz, what did this mean to them when they looked back on this pivot point in their lives that happened at the city gate? Well, today we are witnesses. You know, we talk about how um, in the story that, that Boaz has very particular about making sure there are witnesses gathered and we get to be the witnesses. It's a privilege, right? It's really cool that we get to be a part of the story. Well, today we're witnesses. Today we're gonna see some things. I'm gonna break it into three parts, these 12 verses, okay? We're gonna start with the Redeemer's preparation. We're gonna see Boaz's preparation. That's verses one and two, Okay. And then the second part of this story, we're gonna look at these required court proceedings. It's really, it's really a record of court proceedings and we'll go there a little bit and that's verses three through eight. And then thirdly, we're gonna look at the reaction of the outcome. There's two reactions that are recorded in verses nine through 12, we're gonna look at those. So Ruth chapter four the Redeemer's preparation. Verses one and two, I'm gonna read and then we'll pause a little bit and take a little closer look, okay? So follow along with me. Verse one goes like this. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and he sat, there, he sat down there just as the guardian redeemer, your, your um, translation may say kinsman redeemer. Remember the original Hebrew is goel. That's what that word means, kinsman redeemer. And he had mentioned, the, the kinsman redeemer he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. And so he went over and he sat down. Verse two, Boaz took 10 of the elders of the town and he said, sit here. And they did so. And so I think in your homework, I asked you, how many times did you see sit down? I think if, depending on your translation, it's like five times. You see that over and over and over. Well, Boaz has this plan. Now remember, this is something we need to always keep in mind, okay? That he's essentially working with um, laws that God set up. 
okay? And the laws, remember we talked about how oftentimes when we just take a little cherry pick back at the laws, we look at them, we're like, ooh, that's just weird. Why does he even do that? Well, God was all about protecting and providing. And so his laws do that. And so these particular laws that we're dealing with in Leviticus 25, I think I had you doing that, some light reading there in Deuteronomy 25, are to preserve the name and, and to protect the family, okay? So there's, there's purpose behind the laws that, that Boaz is going to be participating in, okay? And so it's interesting, like think of it this way, um, that these are important things. So the preparation that he's been making is very intentional and precise, and you're gonna see that, okay? So a couple things about these first two verses. Who was there? Boaz. Now we got the nameless kinsman redeemer. We never get a name. Interesting, right? And then you also got the 10 witnesses. What's happening? We're preparing for a deal to be done. Only Boaz really knows this. You know, he's kind of setting the stage, preparing, right? When is it happening? We don't know how long, but remember how we ended the last chapter at the end of, of chapter three? What, what did Naomi say to, to sweet little Ruth? wait, right? Be still and just wait. So we don't know how long the waiting has been, but we know that Boaz has been preparing and planning. And so this is when we're at the gate now. Where, where are we? We're at the city gate. In ancient times, this is where all judicial business was transacted in the presence of elders or witnesses. And we see that, don't we? That there's very intentional plan here that it's not just a couple of dudes talking about a deal being made, but rather there is, a, there is an audience of witnesses and the audience grows. Did you see that? They grow as the thing goes on. So we'll look at that. Well, Boaz's preparations are setting the stage for a life marker, like a pivot point, like a, a, a game changer kind of day, you know? And I don't think Ruth or Boaz will ever want to forget about it. Well, verses three through eight, we go into the court proceedings. Um, Daniel Block, he's a real smart, was a real smart theologian guy. And he, he says about this particular passage, I think this is important before we read it, that we are to understand that this is the ancient equivalent to a modern transcript of a court proceeding, okay? So it's not just, oh, this is happening. This is, this is who's here. This is like all they had. Because remember, this is an oral culture. It's not like they had this big law book. It's not like they had, you know, the people in there typing and keeping notes. No, this is, this is the court proceeding and you're seeing this unfold, okay? So verses three through four go like this, okay? And then I'm gonna stop. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling a piece of land. First time we heard about the land, okay? We didn't know this was part of the deal, right? I lost my place. Let's pretend like, a, a just think thoughts. Okay, it's selling a piece of land and it belonged to our relative Elimelech, verse four. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here, that's the elders, and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me, so I will, and I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am the next in line. I will redeem it, he says. So the nameless guy says, I'm in, I'll do it. Now, I love the dramatic pause, right? Like Boaz, don't you just love him? I love him even more now. Because don't you think it's interesting that he left a little bit of information out, right? Just a little bit. Well, look at what he did say. First of all, this is his first real speech at the gate, okay? 
And what he's doing is he's telling the nameless redeemer that there's this land, but now something that we need to know about the land, it probably wasn't just clearly um, this asset, meaning we know that when Naomi and Ruth came, they have nothing. Okay, we're told that over and over. So the fact that she has land that's from Elimelech, that's her husband, right? Her husband who passed away. What we probably can gather from that is there's like mortgages all over this thing. Like it may be more of a burden than it is an asset, but somebody in high standing financial position may be able to see that as a positive in the future. And so we, we know that this isn't like they're wealthy or anything. It's, it's basically a burden that they're gonna be taking on. However, there's potential, right? And so he lays that out first. So the nameless redeemer says, yep, I'm in, no strings attached, easy choice, got it. The elders are just like eating popcorn or just watching, yeah? Quiet, listening, watching. And then there's a pivot point in verse five. Then Boaz said, on the day that you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire, it's like, you, this is your free gift, right? You also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the dead man's widow. Boy, that sounds appealing. Yeah. Here you go. Enjoy. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. We'll come back to that in just a minute. You get Ruth, the Moabite, the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. I'm gonna stop right there. Verse five, Boaz says, then, oh yeah, P.S., you get this baggage. I mean, Ruth and and Naomi, right? And so all of a sudden, everything kind of shifts. Everything kind of changes. A couple interesting things. We talked about this in our group. Like why all of a sudden are we talking about Ruth, the Moabite again? Remember, I thought we got rid of that. I thought we were done um, saddling her with the baggage of her history, you know? Well, interestingly, there's, there's purpose in why he's using that moniker for her. See, first thing is he's, um, he's making sure that, 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 that this nameless dude um, knows that she's a Moabite. And you know what I suspect? I suspect he's looking for her, his feelings towards this situation. How was he reacting? What did he know? The other thing we see is that he's also inferring from this by basically saying that she's a dead man's widow, right? He's basically saying, you know what? You have to rescue them in honor of Elimelech, her former father-in-law. So you have to take this, 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 this line, this generational thing, and, and you have to adopt this into your future too. It's not as easy as you just taking on this wife and then you moving on with your life. No, because in the culture and in the law, what it says is, and you can go back and read, do some light reading in Leviticus, right? What you can go back and read is that when he takes this on, if he takes Ruth on and he marries her and they have a child, that child is considered his child definitely, but it's also always gonna be referred to in the line of Elimelech. And so now you, you have taken on this whole other thing, not just a piece of land, that's huge, in fact, in the day, and, and the nameless dude would have known this, that one of the worst possible curses you could ever, ever, ever wish upon a man was that his seed dies and that his name dies out. And so God's law makes sure that doesn't happen. Okay, so now the story changes, right? Like now this nameless guy's like, hold up, that's a lot of extra stuff, right? Well, in verse six, we see what happens next. In verse six, it says, at this, the guardian redeemer said, then I cannot redeem. It is because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I can't do it. Interesting, I wonder what Boaz was thinking. What do you think he was thinking? Yeah. I I don't know. I I think um, the narrator wants us to see some things though. 
Because remember, this is a story being told later in life. And I think the narrator wants us to understand the difference between Boaz and the difference between the nameless guy. And the first thing we see is that he wants us to understand the primary role in this whole story in all these proceedings is Boaz. And here's why. When you go through this entire exchange, Boaz like speaks like 93 words and the nameless guy speaks 19. Not even very many words, right? We don't even hear his voice very much, but we know immediately based on how quickly everything changes, we know a lot about him, don't we? We know this too. We know that the primary role of a kinsman redeemer, we've been talking about this over and over. There's, there's really three requirements to be a kinsman redeemer, okay? So remember, you got nameless guy, you got Boaz, and here's the three requirements. See which one fits. First is that they have to be related. So Leviticus 25, 25 tells us that. They have to be related to the person that they're gonna be redeeming, okay? So they both fit, right? And the second thing is they have to be able to pay. We're led to believe both of them have the financial capacity to be able to handle it. So check, right, both of them. But the third thing, man, this is the cool part about the whole redeemer idea, is that they have to be willing to pay. They have to be willing. Remember, um, I think it was chapter two, we talked about how Boaz mentioned, hey, there's another kinsman redeemer. And remember, we know that, that really, truly, Boaz could have washed his hands of this whole mess and walked away, but he didn't. He could have, but he's willing to stay. Pull out the checkbook, right? How much? And so there we see a huge difference. Boaz and the nameless guy. Nameless guy is not willing to pay the price to redeem the situation. Well, the nameless guy, he has a couple interests, doesn't he? First and foremost, his number one interest is protection and provision of himself. Protection and provision of his inheritance, of his future, of his reputation, of his position, I mean, we see no indication here in the 19 words that there's anything beyond me. I'm only thinking about me. We don't know a lot of details about the whole idea about him protecting his inheritance. Um, we can kind of infer from his words that his concern is that he will be sharing basically the legacy with Elimelech's family and that's not appealing to him. We also don't know, like, does he have, you know, future generations that he's concerned about how the, how, um, you know, inheritances will be divided up. We don't know exactly, but we do know that immediately he's like, this will not work for me. Well, Boaz, what are his interests? First and foremost, his interests are protecting and providing for Ruth and Naomi. See that? I mean, not to say he's not getting something out of the deal, right? Remember, he has heart eyes like the cartoon. Like, I mean, I think he's happy. But I don't ever feel, do you feel? Like, do you see his character over these first three chapters that he's a man who cares first about himself? I don't see that. He cares first about others. He cares about preserving the name of the dead and then maybe himself. It's crazy, right? Like nobody knows. He doesn't have to be that way. I love that. I love that about Boaz. I love that he is the same man, has the same character in the dark when no one's looking, no one sees, right? That's who Boaz is. Well, the whole one shoe thing enters the picture here in verse seven. And in the NIV, which is what I'm reading from today, it's actually a parenthetical phrase. And, and it's believed that this is kind of like the narrator's, um, he wants you to understand the reasoning and what's happening here. Interestingly too, remember this thing was written later. 
And so we're, we're led to believe because he says now in earlier times in Israel, because he's speaking to um, the Israelites are hearing these stories, not just us in 2021, whatever this is, fly around Texas. He's writing to some folks in the olden days, but, but we're led to believe in the olden days, they still didn't do the shoe thing. Okay, so already time has passed. And so he's having to explain. So that's what's happening in verse seven. So we get a little glimpse. And verse seven goes like this. Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and the transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. Verse eight, so the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. There's a lot there, right? He's done. A couple of things we know. The sandal thing, think of it this way. It's weird, we know that, right? To have this hanging on the wall. So is sand, so is a guitar pick, you know, so is a, a lift ticket. All these things are strange, but this is a visual symbol, a tactile thing that we take away from this whole court proceeding so we know it actually happened. You see, the sandal was kind of like a handshake or a contract signed or like an agreement that has been notarized, okay? This is the proof. But the other thing is we see the word feet. You know, you think about sandals, they go on your feet, right? They have filthy, nasty feet back in the olden days because they're walking around in sandals all day. But you know what's interesting? We've seen feet come up in our story before, haven't we? In another weird part of this story, right? But the thing about feet is that they often symbolize power and possession and dominance. You see, you guys read like some Old Testament verses where God actually said when he imparted gifts to his people, like the promised land, remember what he said? What did he say? He said, you walk every bit of this and every place the sole of your foot hits, it's yours. And so there's symbolic stuff going on, but there's also cultural things happening that people would understand, man, this is important. There's two purposes here with the whole shoe thing, okay? Two purposes, uh, or two purposes with the way this whole thing goes down, I should say, is first that it's to be a legally binding agreement, something that cannot be undone. And second, it's a call to the witnesses. It's a call to the witnesses. You know, we know this about court proceedings now, right? Like we know that witnesses have a primary role in the whole thing. You can't prove anything unless you have people watching. And so not only do we have a shoe to put on the mantle, but we got witnesses that have seen it all go down, right? And so Boaz, I love our Boaz. Like he's so prepared and he's so gotten ahead of all this that he's ready. Well, verses nine through 12, my favorite. It's the reactions, Reactions of the outcome of this whole court proceeding. The first reaction we see is Boaz. And verse nine goes like this. This is Boaz's reaction. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses. And I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. And I also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow. First place we ever found out which brother it was, by the way, as my wife in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today, you are witnesses. It starts out with then. We've talked about that. Like even those little words, I know one of the, one of the homework lessons this week, you did it, you soaked it. And I love when you, when you go through a verse and you see little words like that, like the word then, it has intention, you see, because it's basically saying, based on what you just heard, what you just read, then this happens. 
So Boaz stands up and he bookends his speech. Do you see that? He bookends his speech with one, one little phrase that's the same in the Hebrew at the beginning and the end. It's a little bit different in our translations. He starts with saying, today you are witnesses. And he ends by saying, today you are witnesses. It's intentional, right? I love that um, you see here that, that he's, he's, he's gone from a kinsman redeemer to the kinsman redeemer. Isn't that cool? This is huge. And whenever he shares this whole speech, you know, he is, he's giving a summary of his role and the transaction that occurred, right? He summarizes, this is what happened. These are the details. I love that he gives us all the details of all the names and everything, right? He didn't have to do that, but he wants all the witnesses to hear it, right? And so he gives this summary, but then he also gives an explanation of his motivations You see, we see that his first and foremost, his motivation is to love others and love God by doing that. Isn't that cool? I mean, Boaz is like this picture of like, golly, man, that's who I wanna be. That's how I wanna live. I don't think very many people walked away thinking, you know what, I wanna live like the nameless guy. Do you realize that his name was never mentioned for a reason? Don't you find it so crazy interesting that his number one concern was the future generations, his estate, his inheritance, and yet no one ever knew his name and never spoke of it ever again. Wow, right? He cared most about that. And Boaz, we don't see that at all. And yet Boaz's name lives on forever because he's in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Isn't that a trip? The man who put himself first is so very last, he's nameless, but the man who put others first and who loved God with his whole life and his whole everything with the open-handed kind of faith is in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Don't miss it. Well, verse 11, we see the next reaction. The next reaction is the witnesses, okay? This is how they react to the court proceedings. Verse 11 goes like this. Then, another then, the elders and all the people at the gate. Don't you love that? Like, I kind of think of it like the, you know, the New Testament thing when um, Jesus feeds the 5,000. I always wonder like if people are like, oh, there's lunch and just more people showed, more people showed. I kind of feel like this too. Like who, oh, this is not important. Forget all this, but don't you wonder where Naomi is? We know Naomi. She's probably peeking through the bushes. Like what's happening, right? It doesn't say that she's there, but we wonder if she's there. But I think about it like in the beginning, it's the 10 elders and now it's the elders and all the people. I love it. I love that this whole thing is drawing people in so they're getting to see this whole thing. Okay, that was all me. Just forget all that part. Okay, so verse 11 goes like this. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah. Remember, that's just Bethlehem. That's just the same thing. And be famous in Bethlehem, verse 12. Though the, through the offspring the Lord gives you by, his young, by this young woman in the third blessing, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Cool, right? So now you've got the crowds and the elders and the witnesses and everybody's gathered around and there's three blessings that are issued on this new family. Three things. First, you see Ruth mentioned. She's not mentioned by name. Interesting, right? They don't say her name, wonder why. I'm so fascinated by that. 
but you know what they do say? They mention her in this way. They say, the woman coming into your house, I don't know what your translation says, but just know this, that the original traditional language would, would be indicating that she's going to be a bride that she is now being taken into your home. So it wasn't, it wasn't a diss on her necessarily, but it was like, okay, now we see that she is your bride. And so this is what our blessing is for her. Interesting, right? Like we've seen over and over, like we don't know how people were towards her. We know little, little hints. We know she's called the Moabite all the time. So she's dragging her history with her, right? And we also know that people consider her a worthy woman. She has this reputation and we know what Boaz thinks of her. And so I think it's so fascinating, right? That in this moment, they're blessing this woman in this future. I love it. They asked for blessings in God's name over a foreign woman. Don't miss that. That's huge. How, how graceful and how merciful that is for these people to be praying this blessing over this woman who is a foreigner. They also asked for, for her to be fertile and included in the names of the matriarchs of Israel. You see, we see the names Leah and Rachel, and I know you dug in that a little bit in your homework, but we see that and we're like, oh, okay, cool. No, no, no. Like to them, that is like, um, that is like they, they, they are the, the mothers of Israel to them. Like that is the highest praise that they can bestow on someone. And she's a foreigner. Well, then they go in and they bless Boaz, right? And they, they, here's the two things they kind of they bless him and, and pray for him, that he will be fruitful and that he will be famous. Fruitful and famous. That's what they pray for him. And his name is known and we still teach about it today and the nameless guy dropped off the pages of history, right? Well, the third thing that they pray over is their future family. And you see referenced here Tamar. And I know you, caught, you went through that in your homework a little bit. That's a sketchy story. Go read that at bedtime. Super fun, very weird. But also happened, okay? But I think about this, when, when they include Tamar, I love that. I love that, um, that, that in God's story, that the really messy, broken stories are not left, in, left out, amen? Like, I would not wanna read this thing if it was a bunch of perfect folks. I got friends that have so many problems with guys like David. I'm like, are you kidding me? David's my hero. I could be a murderer in a second, you know, but to know that God loves me through it, not in spite of it. And I think about Tamar, you know, I think about that too. I think about like that story. We don't know the details. We don't know the nuances, but we do know this, that God used it and God brought glory to himself through it. And so we look at that and we think, okay, well, when they're talking about that, these people are thinking these are two women, two foreigners who have act actively pursued security for their future. That's, that's something. We also know this, that we're, we're told that Tamar, that Perez was one of her sons born to Judah. You know, what's crazy about that is that Perez's descendants um, seem to have played a pretty pivotal role in the history of Israel, right? Boaz, that's one of his ancestors. No coincidences, you know? And so I love that the people are praising and praying these things over this family, this future family, and it has such impact. You know what's crazy about this? So think about it. They're saying this cool little prayer at the very end of chapter four and whatever, but you know what they're doing? They think they're praying. You know what they're doing? They're prophesying. You realize that? Like, think about it for just a minute. How often are our prayers answered in such a way that we never, ever, ever actually saw coming? Do you think when they prayed fruitfulness and famousness, is that a word? 
probably not. When they prayed that over Boaz, do you think they thought that he'd be in the genealogy of the king who would come to save mankind? Do you think they saw that coming? I mean, that probably wasn't in their prayer journal. I love that God exceeds every expectation, every prayer we could ever pray. It looks different and sometimes it's painful and sometimes it's really, really hard, but the way he answers these prayers should be motivating for us. Well, the prayers are answered all right and we're gonna get to see that in the next week or so. Look, in closing, I just wanna throw a couple things at you. What do, what do we do with this? You know, I mean, this is a cool story. I love all the nuances of it. I love all the detail and everything, but I found myself at the end of it going, all right, God, you know, um, what do I take from this for my life? What do we take out with us? Well, I thought of three questions that I thought each of us just, I think it would be wise to ask, you know? And so I'm gonna give three questions and then we'll go and hang out with our best friends and stuff, okay? So the first question is this. Where do I need to prepare like Boaz? Where do I need to prepare? You remember he was so prepared and ready for that time at the gate. We don't know how much waiting happened. We don't don't know a lot, but we know he was ready. Maybe we're preparing for a life marker, pivot point, game changer kind of day that's coming. Maybe it's, it's not one of those great things. Maybe it's a life change and a pivot point that, that's not something you would have chosen. I don't know. I think Boaz probably experienced that too, but are we ready? Here's how I saw Boaz being ready. And maybe we take from him as an example. Okay, three things that Boaz did to be ready, to be prepared. First is that Boaz trusted God and his plan even when no, else, no one else was doing that. In Judges 21, 25, I've quoted it a million times. We need to needlepoint it on a pillow, right? There was no kings in Israel, and so people were doing what was right in their own eyes. That's what was happening in the culture. And yet Boaz is trusting God and trusting God's plan when who knows what everyone was even saying in his ears. What were the voices telling him to do? I mean, he had so many opportunities, Right? I don't know, who determines um, what you trust? Who determines your steps, your, your decisions, your priorities? Who, who, who does that? Who speaks to that? Maybe it's social media. Maybe it's approval of others. Maybe it's justifications. Maybe it's, well, this is just the way God made me. I don't know. But I love that Boaz never fell on any of those things. I'm not aware of his social media account. I'm not aware of who he was listening to. I just hear him listening to God. Boaz also... Um, readied himself for whatever was gonna come. He readied himself for whatever was gonna come. Do you remember that in chapter two, verse 11, he said this, see if you remember these words. This is what he said to Ruth, okay? This is when we know he had the hard eyes, the cartoon eyes, and he was like, I wanna marry this woman, right? We know this, but this is what he says. And now my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Verse 12, and he says, and now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. You see, we know what he wanted, but we also know what he was willing to do if he didn't get what he wanted. I'm gonna say it again. We know what he wanted, but we also know what he was willing to do if he didn't get what he wanted. Even if, even when, even though, right? That kind of faith is what Boaz had. I mean, he was gonna walk away from this even though he didn't want to. 
Another way that I feel like we need to look at how Boaz was prepared is this, is that Boaz put others first even when he couldn't win big. Think about it. How many times in the story of Boaz, not to get uncomfortable and weird, how many times could Boaz have made a different decision? I mean, think about the threshing floor for a hot minute. In the middle of the night, in the dark, there's a woman at his feet who is desperate, right? There's so many things that could have gone south. And yet, Boaz, this man who, who, who readied himself for whatever God had, even in the dark, you know? He still made choices even, um, even when he could have done something. He didn't have to. He didn't put himself first. I think about, um, first of all, I am not Boaz. Okay, I wanna be clear about that. Also, I'm not a saint in any, in any I'm, a, I'm terrible. Okay, but I thought about this story when I was reading this. I'm like, you know what? It's like Boaz in the dark was, was this man of honor and he was making choices when no one was looking that were honoring to God. And I thought um, um, immediately about the DMV. Anyone? Yeah, that's just not godly at all, is it? It's a terrible place horrible place. If you work there, I'm so very sorry. But you know what I thought about? I did. I thought about this one moment. Um, and I've talked about this before because maybe I've never done something quite so honest before, but I was at the DMV and I was one of those people, right? That I had to get the, what's it called? The registration on my car. And it was like two months behind. I know you guys don't do that. I know, but I did. And so I go in and I get, pull the number, right? You know how this works. And you sit in the little plastic chair and you just wait for hours and hours to like all your number. Well, the chair that I sat in was right across the window of the happy DMV workers. So happy, God bless them. I hate their jobs for them. Anyway, <laughs> I'm sitting right in front of the window and so I hear what's happening. And, and, and it's a bunch of other people like me who have had their car for two months driving, just hoping the police don't see it, right? And, and they get up to the window. You know what I'm gonna say. I'm not looking at anybody. I'm not judging you. But you get up to the window and the lady says this, right? You know what she says? Have you driven your car since the registration expired? And you're like, nope, it's been in the garage for two months. I've been taking the bus. <laughs> Everybody says it. It's no big deal. Everybody says it. And the lady gets the thing and she charges you the exorbitant fee and you pay it and you do the thing, right? And so I'm sitting in my plastic chair. I'm like, okay, I'm ready. I'm ready to lie. I'm ready, I can do it. Everybody did it. I can do this. No big deal, right? My dumb little number gets called. I get up to the window. <laughs> I'm still, this is still, I'm sh I just wanna go find that lady and ask her like, what were you thinking? I get up to the window and I'm like, ready to lie. Oh, it's two months past. Have you driven your car? I'm like, no, I haven't. Wait, yes, I have. I've been driving it for two months. And she just looks at me like, what? And I go, yeah, I've been driving it for two months. She goes, you know, it's gonna be like $50 extra. And I'm like, yeah, just don't tell my husband. <laughs> I couldn't do it. And, and I left there, you know, I walked out and I'm like, hey, did everybody see what I did? Nobody saw, nobody cared, especially not that woman. She was probably more annoyed because she had to like do a different transaction. I don't know. But I got in my car and I sat there and I'm like, okay. It was just something in me, you know? I, I got to the window and I just couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. And it, I can't, I'm not a saint, I'm not Boaz, but that's what I thought of when I thought of Boaz and all the choices he made. It's like so many times, right? He could have chose something completely different. And yet something in him, someone in him said, no, it's not the man that you are, you know? Sorry if you're going to the DMV later. Don't blame me when you have to pay extra fees because you're gonna feel bad. <laughs> well, the second question um, that I would ask you to ask yourself when you're thinking about this story, second question is this. 
How can I remember redemption in my story? How can I remember redemption in my story? You know, we, we, they had this shoe. But do you think that they had the shoe up on the mantle or, you know, hanging on the wall and that every time anybody looked at it, the grandkids, let's say, or the great grandkids, King David from Soda, do you think that anybody looked at it and said, tell me about the shoe? And they go, ah, you know, it was just kind of a thing. It was a thing where we did a really good, we were, it was right before we got married. It was a real cheap wedding. It was great. Let's, you know, move on. No, I suspect that this always pointed back to God in this redemption story. I suspect that. I think about what are the things in your life that you look back? What are the things you want to remember? What are the keepsakes that you have? What if you, what, what if you look at them a little differently? You know, what if instead of looking at the jar full of dirt, jar full of sand, I look at that and I remember God sees us. He sees every one of us and he saves every one of us if we're willing to receive the gift. Every one of us. Even my teenage kid, you know? And what about this? What about when I look at, you know, the lift tickets that's framed or, you know, whatever you have, what about instead of looking at this framed lift ticket, like, yeah, that was the ski trip. And, you know, then I look at it and I say, you know what? God's plans are so much better than mine. I had no idea what was coming. And he did. God, you are so cool. That's so good. I love that. You know, what about when I look up crumpled up set lists and, and framed guitar picks, instead of just looking at them like, man, that was fun, that was a good concert. What about instead I look at that and I think, you know, there was a time in our lives that were really hard and God gave us this little glimpse of joy. Like we had this overnight, we got to go to these, this concert and we had this incredible experience. And every time I hear one of those songs on that set list, I think back to how hard those times were, but how God goes, hey, let me throw you a bone give you a concert. Let me give you a trip. Let me, let me let you go away together. That's what we need to remember, right? That's the redemption in our stories. Like I think often we just look back and remember things and then we compare our stories to somebody else's and go, well, I didn't have that sandal. My sandal wasn't that good, right? How about instead we look back differently and, and we remember, you know, um, I think about this too. Think about the witnesses. We got to be witnesses, right? On this story. Maybe you didn't know when those things were happening that there were prayers going out, maybe. Maybe some of your prayers, you didn't even know were prayers when this was happening. Maybe every wish, every hope was a prayer that you just didn't have the, the words, right? Maybe there was, there was a tribe of 10 elders at a city gate praying for the situation that you're going through now. Or did, I don't know. But, but I think we have to remember that there's redemption in our stories, even if we don't call it that, amen? That God is present. Well, the last question I would suggest that each one of us walk out asking is this. Have I trusted the Redeemer? Have I trusted the Redeemer? There's three requirements for a kinsman Redeemer, remember? The first is this, he's gotta be related to you. You know what's cool about Jesus Christ? Is it in John 1.14? I love the message version. It says that he put on skin and he moved into the neighborhood, right? God moved into the neighborhood so he could get to know you on a personal level. Like that's crazy stuff. But he's related because he became a man, fully man, not just a God in heaven sitting on his big throne, but he is a man who came to earth to live and did not sin. Well, he also has to be able to pay. Well, Jesus Christ lived a sinless life and he could pay the price that we could not pay. 
He was the perfect sacrifice that none of us could ever be, right? And the last thing that he needs to be is he needs to be willing to pay. He needs to be able to whip out the checkbook and say how much, this one's mine. And he was. I love that. You know, Charles Spurgeon said this and then I'm gonna close. I, I, I thought this was such a great quote. When you think about the redeemer, you think about have I, have I accepted what this ultimate kinsman redeemer did for me? Maybe you have. You know, maybe you've accepted Jesus as your personal savior, but maybe just maybe it's time that you live like you believe that he really did. You know, maybe you look at the, the shoe hanging on the wall and you say, you know what? I wanna see that differently because I wanna see the redemption in it, not just the pain in it. I don't know. But Charles Spurgeon said this, and I thought this is a great way for us to close up. My entire theology can be condensed into four words. Jesus died for me. Have you accepted the kinsman redeemer? Is this your theology? Because you know what? All this, you know, talking about the Hebrew and talking about the characters and talking about the traditions and the laws and all, that's so fantastic and fabulous. But at the end of the day, those four words are the only four words that matter. Will you pray with me? Father, um, I thank you so much. I thank you so much that you give us a picture of a redeemer in a way that we can understand and kind of relate to. But God, I pray that every one of us leaves here understanding this is not a story absent of, of our role. Is that we have a gift to receive and if we haven't received it, then we don't have that kinsman redeemer relationship. But yet he's standing there with a checkbook. And so Father, will you forgive us if we, if we hear that and know that and still turn away? And God, for those of us who have received that awesome, perfect, amazing gift. God, I pray that we live differently, that we choose to, to, in the dark, be the same person that we are when people are watching, that we choose to prepare ourselves for sometimes when the prayers don't get answered the way we want to, and that we look at the life of Boaz and we think, gosh, I wanna be like that. I wanna be others focused. I wanna be God first. How do I do it? And so God, I pray that this is a revival, that this is a moment where our faith um, becomes alive again in a different way and that we see redemption in every story and every sandal hanging on the wall. And thank you so much that, um, that you love us enough to give us stories, to give us memories, to let us look back to inform, but not camp, but rather to, to, to move forward always. Thank you so much for your son and it's in his name that we pray, amen.